Let's listen and read now from the scripture of John, first chapter, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light has given light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Say hallelujah. <laughs> children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of God. Shall I pray? Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful and beautiful passage in your word. Thank you for speaking to us already. Father, bless your servant, Robin, our pastor. We're really thankful for him and for his family. Father God, open our hearts and open our ears and open our minds that we will be able to receive what you want to tell to each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, when I started this series, um, I said that um, one of the things about having four Gospels in the New Testament is that it doesn't take much time or much comparison to realize that each one of them has their own individual character. So Mark is 
generally generally agreed to be the the earliest written gospel, and it's certainly the fastest moving. It kind of rushes breathlessly from one event in Jesus' life to the other. It doesn't have anything to say about Jesus' life before he appeared in public ministry, so we haven't used it at all during the Advent season. Luke took Mark's gospel and basically rewrote it for his own audience. And he has a focus on the poor and the marginalized. But he's also concerned to show that Jesus is a true Jew. And so last week we heard about Simeon and Anna blessing Jesus in the temple courts. Matthew did the same thing for his audience, which has traditionally been seen as more Jewish, Matthew's, um, Matthew's gospel. Despite that, the story that we uh, drew from Matthew's gospel for the Advent season was about foreigners, actually Jewish astrologers. John's gospel, the one that we're looking at today, is generally considered to be the more theological gospel, um, written significantly later than the others, and generally thought to be the result of uh, a long life that started with, with traveling with Jesus, but a long period of reflection on who Jesus is. And so um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, are full of Jesus's actions. John, to ha- John tends to have more of Jesus's words. If you look in a red, red letter version of the Bible, much more of John is read than the other gospels. <clears throat> And the synoptics are full of literally dozens of parables. But it's generally accepted that John's gospel tends more towards allegory than parable. So it's hardly surprising then that when Matthew and Luke begin uh, their gospels with stories of Jesus' birth or listings of his family's tree, John begins with a statement about Jesus' theological significance. Now, when you start talking about theology, some people begin to put their guard up. It's like, I don't, you know, don't like theology. Theology is a bad Theology is just what you think about God. That's what it is, right? It's what you believe about God. And the fact is, everybody has a basic idea about what they think about God. Even atheists, if you push them, have a pretty clear idea about the God that they don't believe in. Right? So even atheists have a theology of sorts. So, this morning we're not going to look at Uh, a story about Jesus' birth. In fact, if you can do this, I'd like to start off by trying to forget that we're talking about Jesus at all. Because that will actually help you understand what John is saying. Because where the other gospel writers are more like historians, John is more of an artist. And you can see that in the way he opens his, his gospel. The others all start off with nice, prosaic, you know, simple historical accounts of one sort or another. But the first lines of John's gospel stand up alongside the first lines of great works of literature. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Okay, test. Where's that from? Tale of Two Cities, yes. Here's a harder one. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. No Russians amongst us. 
That's from Tolstoy. Um, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. <laughs> That's Shakespeare. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I used to work in an engineering company, and um, the engineers would make decisions about the way things would be done. They would decide um, how a certain engineering problem should be solved. They would decide what kind of tolerances need to be applied to the part. They would decide how a particular component had to be made. They didn't actually go down to the shop floor and machine it. They just gave the word and it happened. Actually, what they did was they made sketches, which I, as a draftsman, turned into engineering drawings. And those went to the shop floor after he had, the engineer had signed off on them. But the principle is the same. So who was responsible for the final part? Who was responsible, actually, if it didn't do what it was supposed to do, which is the only time you ever heard about this? Was it the machine that turned it out? No, it wasn't the machine that turned it out. Was it the machinist who ran the machine? No, machinists are good people. My brother-in-law's a machinist. Um, but they're not, respons they're not responsible for the final effectiveness of the part. Was it the draftsman like me who made the drawings? No, once the engineer signs off in the bottom right-hand corner of the drawing, it's no longer my responsibility. It's the engineer who gave the word to do it that way that's responsible for the performance of the part. Because a person's word is an extension of themselves. The engineer's word is what led to the part turning out the way it did which is why they pay engineers more than machinists or draftsmen. John starts off talking about the word of God in the same way, as an extension of God himself. But that wasn't really anything new. There's a long Jewish tradition of talking about God's creative wisdom in this way. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is portrayed as a woman and says about herself, I was, this is verse 27, Proverbs 8. I was there when God set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in humankind. God's word is God in action, God at work. And at the beginning of his gospel, where he says, in the beginning, John is clearly echoing back to the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's saying God's word was there too, at the beginning, with God. In fact, the same as God. Nothing exists that wasn't made by and through the word. When I was a young Christian, I was deeply influenced by a Christian philosopher apologist whose name was Francis Schaeffer and his book, He is There and He is Not Silent. And he argues that not only that God exists, but that we can know him because he's spoken. The God of the Bible is the God who speaks. If God hadn't spoken into the universe, we would be alone in the silence, 
having no idea why we're here or who we are. In fact, that's where a lot of people are today. They believe the universe is essentially meaningless and they've set out to create meanings for themselves in the middle of that terrible silence. But God is not silent. He has spoken. In fact, his word is an integral part of who he is and his words at the core of the universe. So in the beginning, God gives a word in the midst of silence. And that word was involved in making everything that exists. But John focused on two things in particular, life and light. He says, what came into being through the word was life. And John still has us back in the first verses of Genesis, first chapters of Genesis. He's reminding us that not only did God make everything exists through his, through his word, all life comes from God too. In the creation story, God spoke his word and life came into being. Genesis 1.24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. So when John says, what came into being through the word was life, he's saying that this word that he's talking about is responsible not just for the physical creation, for the rocks and water and air, but for all of living creation too. The reason the earth isn't a dead chunk of rock floating through space is because God brought life to it through his word. Now, you can argue about the processes that God used to do that, whether it was almost instantaneous and miraculous or happened over millions of years and took natural processes. I tend, I not tend to, I definitely land in the second category. The world is millions of years old. We can talk about that at some other time. Either way, Scripture is clear that there is life on this globe because God, because God spoke his word over it. And John finishes up his quick overview of creation in the same place as Genesis does with people. He says, the life was the light for all people. In Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. And in Genesis 2.7, the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Both Genesis and John are saying human beings are special. We can know ourselves and we can know God. God put that capacity into us in the beginning and it's still there. It's damaged by sin, but we're still made in his image. The capacity to respond to God is still there as God continues to reach out to his creation. Even after human beings have turned their backs on him and brought darkness into the world. And so John changes the metaphor. He changes from talking about the word to talking about the light. But he's still talking about the same thing. God at work in his creation. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. I think that's pretty impressive. In the space of five verses, John has built a whole theory of the universe, a cosmology. God created everything in the universe by his word. 
And just as he is the creative word, he's also the light that reaches out to his creation, even though it has fallen into darkness. That's a good solid start for thinking about who we are, who God is, and what our place is in creation. That's what TV shows and movies call the backstory. The story that happens, you know, that lies behind everything else that happens from week to week. So um, has anybody seen the new Star Wars movie yet? Okay, you guys are just geeks, all right? (laughs) Star Wars movies actually give you the backstory in the first few seconds of the movie, right? That's a tradition that started in the first movie of the franchise. Somebody give me the tune. Anyway, it is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel ships, etc., 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 right? Um, that's the backstory. In the same way, the Bible makes no sense unless you know the backstory that John has just condensed into the first verses of his gospel. That God created the universe as a place of life and light. It is now a place of darkness, but God's light continues to reach into the world. That's the backstory to everything else that happens in Scripture. And so we get to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And suddenly we're no longer talking about concepts. We're no longer talking about philosophical ideas, light, life, word. We're talking about people, a man called John, in a particular place, a particular time, who came as a witness to the light. Now, it's made abundantly clear that this guy is not the star of the show. He's a supporting actor. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So we're still, we're still waiting to find out what the light is. Verse 9, the true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. It's coming. It's on its way. But we don't know yet what it will look like. In fact, we're told in verse 10, the light was in the world and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. Then finally, in verse 11, after all this long build up about the world, the word and the light, we find that they're not just concepts. They aren't just ways of talking about a God who is far away and running the universe. It says in verse 11, the light came to his own people And his own people didn't welcome him. The light, the word, this thing that the word has been waiting for, it isn't a concept. It's a person. A person with a particular story. He came to his own people and his own people did not welcome him. This is Jesus' story. But it's a very different way of looking at it. Instead of starting with his birth or the beginning of his public ministry and working forwards towards the cross and resurrection, John starts at creation and gives us a backstory. Then he still doesn't start talking about Jesus. Instead, he jumps to the end of the story. Jesus' rejection by his own people. And he tells us what it means. He came to his own people and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him Those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. 
everything else he writes in his gospel will be filling in the gap. That's, he's, he's told you about the backstory. He's told you about the end of the story. Everything else is filling in the gaps. Jesus is God's word spoken into our silence. Jesus is God's life overcoming our death and sin. Jesus is God's light shone into our darkness. It's why we celebrate Christmas. Because the child that was born in Bethlehem was also the word of God, the life and the light of God. Jesus is God's final word to humanity. Hebrews 1 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various places, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Like John, the writer to Hebrews, places Jesus right back at the beginning, at creation, through whom also he made the universe. Unlike John, Hebrews brings the stories right up to date. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Why is Jesus' coming good news? Because as the word of God, he makes God known to us. We don't have to guess about what God is like. We don't have to make things up. Jesus is the word. He communicates who God is, which is why it's a good idea to spend time reading the Gospels. Because in them, we see God with skin on. One of my pet peeves about evangelical churches is that the, the word means gospel people, but we spend hardly any time preaching the Gospels. We, we, we much prefer to hear what Paul has to say about Jesus than what Jesus has to say about Jesus, statistically speaking. It's important to spend time in the Gospels. A long time ago, um, we had a colleague, a Moroccan colleague on a ministry team in Amsterdam who led a number of his friends to, to the Lord. I remember somebody once asking him how he did it. He says, I just read the Gospels with them and let them fall in love with Jesus. That's what they're there for. <laughs> Read them. Use them. <laughs> Jesus also brings life. Later on in his gospel, in chapter 11, John will write, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Life's a major theme in John's, by the way, starting in January, we'll be going through the seven I am sayings of Jesus. Every Sunday, we'll be going through a different one. Starting off with, I am the bread of life, I believe. Uh, first, week of, first week of January. Again and again, it's clear in John's gospel that Jesus is the key to life. He holds life, eternal life in his hand, and he gives it to those who believe in him. This is his promise. That those who believe in him, trust him, give their lives to him, will have life, real life. Life that lasts forever. So why is Jesus good news? Because he brings life. 
Then chapter 8 of John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the darkest time of the year. Yesterday, yesterday was the shortest day of the year, right? One of the great things for me about living in Antalya is I don't have nearly as much dif difficulty as I used to have from SADS. Anybody know what that is? Seasonal Affective Disorder Syndrome, where it's the, the dark days of winter are very hard. Um, something about lack of sunlight, vitamin D levels, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if anybody really knows what does it, but certainly around this time of year, um, it's hard for, peop for people who have that problem to just kind of function well. And I grew up in Scotland, right? This time of year, I, you know, you get up in the dark, go to school in the dark, come home in the dark. It was not a fun time of year. John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The church that I joined soon after I became a Christian in Scotland um, had, a, had a tradition of holding a watch night service, which I believe this congregation used to do at one point as well. So you have the service starts at 1130 at night and um, well, Christmas Eve. And so you, you bring in Christmas in worship together. I still remember one Christmas Eve where the minister's message went through all the failures of God's people in the Old Testament. The bad kings, the destruction of Israel, the exile of Judah, and so on. And as he spoke, someone at the back of the church was switching off, gradually switching off one bank of lights after another until the church was in total darkness. And I mean total, this is like midnight in Scotland in wintertime. It's like, it's, it's dark. And then he read this passage from memory, I guess, the one that we're, we're looking at this morning. And when he got to verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. He lit a candle. And that one candle lit up the entire church which is clearly a great illustration because I still remember it 45 years later. God's light is greater than any darkness. And that illustration captures perfectly why we celebrate Christmas at this time of year. As I said on the first Sunday of this series, Jesus probably wasn't born in December. But Christmas is an early exercise in what's called contextualization. Trying to make the gospel more accessible to people. All over the world, there's these, these festivals, ancient festivals around this time of year that celebrate the fact that the days are no longer getting shorter and that spring is on its way. Winter has turned, there's hope for a new spring, hope for a new life. They were celebrations that the darkness hadn't won, that light would return to the earth. So in the fourth century, the church attached John's idea of the true light coming into the world to the ancient festival celebrating the return of light to the world, and we all got Christmas. 
There's a good biblical foundation for that. Um, apart from Passover, all of the Old Testament festivals are actually at the same time as Canaanite festivals. But they've just been appropriated and given new meaning. Pentecost, Tabernacles, those are all harvest and agricultural festivals. So when we celebrate Christmas at this time of year, we celebrate that God's light is greater than any darkness. And for those of you who spend a lot of time with local people, um, that might be a way to separate the festival from all the Western junk that has got connected to it. This is a symbolism behind it. It's about God's light overcoming darkness. It's not about a guy in a red suit with reindeer. Anyway, it's like, so you know, we, we come in on the tram past, uh, you know, um, Republic Square, Jumhuriat, Maidana. Um, it's full of, you know, like Santa's got his little chair there. And they've got like New Year and reindeer. It's like, it's very confusing. Uh, but for all of us, it's good to be reminded that God's light is greater than any darkness. So, where's a darkness in your life today? Where's a darkness in your life today? For some of you, Christmas can be a difficult time of year. Um, you remember loved ones who are gone or who are lost. And so in the midst of all the joy and celebration, there's also sadness, darkness. <sighs> Loved ones who you don't know where they are or you're estranged. Or you know, you know where they are, but you don't talk, right? Or you know where they are, but they're living lives that bring you pain, Maybe it's something in your own life that has brought darkness. Something you've done that you wish you hadn't. Maybe a diagnosis that you wish you'd never heard. A future that's full of uncertainty. And as everybody is looking forward to celebrating a new year, you're just wondering what the new year will bring because there's this darkness that's overshadowing your life. Christmas reminds us that it doesn't matter how dark it is. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not extinguish the light. It's what Jesus does. He shines light into our darkness. He gives true life to us. And he reveals God to us. No wonder his coming is good news. Let's pray.